Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. I'm the host, David Intracasso. During this podcast, we'll discuss uh, what's being done to prevent the spread of antimicrobial-resistant bacteria or infections. With me to discuss the topic is the Infectious Disease Society of America's Ms. Amanda Jessick. Welcome, Amanda. Thank you. As always, let me begin with some context. The persistent and indiscriminate use of antibacterial or antimicrobial drugs has resulted in an increase in their effectiveness at combating infections. For example, C. diff infection rates more than doubled between 2001 and 2010, according to the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality. Today, more than 70% of bacteria that cause HIIs or hospital-acquired infections are resistant to at least one type of antibacterial, while the number of new approved antibacterial drugs have been steadily falling since the 1980s. These factors, among others, explain why healthcare-acquired infections or hospital-acquired infections are the most common patient complication today and account for the frighteningly high morbidity and mortality rates cited in the website introduction to this podcast. Again, with me to discuss what's being done to develop better treatments for these infections is Ms. Jessick. Ms. Jessick's bio is noted on the website, so I'll not read it here. So with that, Amanda, let me begin by asking you about overuse. Uh, why do we overuse antibacterials? Why do we overuse uh, these uh, antibacterials? I think that there are any number of reasons for um, overuse or what we call inappropriate use of antibiotics um, in various settings. Uh, in the outpatient setting, I think that you know a lot of uh, patients um, or parents of, of young patients may not necessarily understand. They think I'm sick. My child is sick. I want an antibiotic. I want to get better. Um, you know, not necessarily realizing that what is causing their illness is perhaps not a bacterial infection, but in fact a virus, um, as is often the case with upper respiratory infections. Like bronchitis. For exactly, like bronchitis, um, or certainly cold or flu, or are also caused by viruses and not bacteria. So they'll go to the doctor and insist upon an antibiotic, um, and we oftentimes do not have. Um, rapid, um, highly sensitive diagnostic tests that a doctor can use to be able to tell a patient right away whether or not their infection is viral or bacterial. Um, the doctor likely may suspect one or the other, but you know is often pressured by a patient into giving um, a uh, prescription for an antibiotic even when that's not necessarily the appropriate um, course of treatment. So that's one area where we're certainly seeing um, some inappropriate use. Another area is actually outside of human health entirely, but in the agricultural setting, um, we know that um, a lot of food producing animals are given antibiotics um, just as a regular course in their feed um, as part of disease um, prevention and even growth promotion. Um, so that's certainly another area of inappropriate use that we feel has been contributing to the resistance problem. So we'll circle back on this latter item when we get to the Congress. So let me ask, with increasing resistance to antimicrobial treatments, what are, why are drug companies pulling out of R&D uh, for uh, production or for, uh, for these um, antibacterials? I think there are three main hurdles to um, antibiotic R&D that has, has been causing companies to pull back from this area. Um, there's economic hurdles, there are scientific hurdles, and regulatory hurdles. Um, economically, antibiotics are simply not as 
profitable an investment for a lot of companies um, for a number of reasons. They're typically used for a short duration of time. Um, the strongest antibiotics doctors often want to hold in reserve because they know that the more they use them, the more quickly resistance will develop. Um, and so, you know, as compared to um, drugs that treat high cholesterol or high blood, um, high blood pressure, exactly, that as someone may take for a very long time, possibly even for the rest of their lives, um, antibiotics are just not as profitable to companies who are kind of considering where to put their resources. Um, from a scientific perspective, you know, a lot of the low-hanging fruit, so to speak, the easiest antibiotics have already been discovered, you know, in um, over the last um, several years or several decades. And if you look at some of the biggest threats that we're facing, um, the most serious pathogens are these sort of what we call gram-negative um, bacteria, and many of them have a cell wall that is very difficult for um, antibiotics to be able to penetrate and treat effectively. Um, from a regulatory perspective, uh, a lot of FDA's um, clinical trial guidances um, have not really been feasible for companies um, for a number of reasons. Um, one is that it's been very difficult for companies to be able to populate very large-scale traditional clinical trials for some of the most serious pathogens. Um, there's a number of reasons for that. One being, as I mentioned earlier, we don't always have good diagnostic tools. Um, and so we're not able to necessarily identify what kind of pathogen a patient has very quickly. Um, FDA has often in the past said that if um, a patient has already received any antibiotics, that they're then not eligible for any clinical trial. Um, and doctors, when seeing a patient present with a very serious infection, know that they may need to start treatment within hours or that patient's going to die. And so they're not able to wait for the results of a diagnostic test um, you know, to be able to determine if that patient's eligible for a clinical trial or not. Um, I think another um, reason is that some of these pathogens are um, still not tremendously common. Um, some of the biggest threats are still um, occurring, you know, they're not at, at hitting outbreak epidemic type levels um, just yet. But given how long it takes to develop new drugs, we don't want to first start developing those drugs when we're seeing millions and millions of people coming down with these infections. We want to start right away so that we're prepared as these pathogens continue to spread because they do spread quickly. And per, we're talking multiple pathogens, and in your literature you talk about these so-called escape pathogens, and we won't get into the details of all of those, but the point of it is there are multiple uh, numbers of these bacteria. But let me ask you on the first point, uh, your first comment relative to, say, the return on investment for um, uh, uh, research uh, companies. Uh, I'm sure you, you saw the recently aired Frontline piece, Hunting the Nightmare Bacteria. Um, it sounded like a B horror movie. When asked, uh, when asked why Pfizer gave up on its uh, related research, uh, which was gram-negative research, in 2011, Pfizer's Charles Knirsch stated the company concluded persisting would not constitute a prudent use of capital. That's a tough, no pun intended, pill to swallow. Mm -hmm. um, it's a very cold, rational decision. But let me ask you, what did, what did you make of the comment? Well, you know, obviously I think we were all very disappointed to see Pfizer really pull back on um, this very promising research they'd been doing um, on antibiotics that could treat gram-negatives. Um, I, I, that's incredibly important work that needs to be done. 
Um, you know, at the same time, we understand they're a company. They have to, you know, respond to their um, uh, their st- their um, shareholders and um, you know be held accountable in that way. Um, and they have they have a bottom line. Um, you know, I think it just underscores the fact that there's essentially a market failure for antibiotics. Um, you know, just given the natural market forces, antibiotics simply can't compete for a company's resources against um, much more profitable drugs. Um, from IDSA's perspective, you know, that is a big part of why we felt the need to step in and you know, tell government, look, the market has failed. We need government to step in um, and address this problem and provide some incentives to get companies to, um, to get back into this business of making antibiotics. Um, one of our leaders, uh, Dr. Brad Spellberg, has a great quote um, that says, we can't make companies make antibiotics. We have to make them want to make antibiotics. And so that's something that we've been um, doing a lot of advocacy work on. So let's go to sort of the solution possibilities then. And let's turn to what's being done uh, by your organization. There is this program that was announced uh, by the IDSA called 10 times 20, meaning 2020. Can you briefly describe or explain what that program intends to do. Sure. So um, the 10 by 20 initiative is basically um, a call for the development of 10 new drugs um, by the year 2020. Uh, It was launched in 2010, and we had uh, several dozen partners um, sign on to this initiative, um, various other medical societies and public health organizations um, that share our concern for the lack of new antibiotics. And um, I think that what we really wanted to do was bring together um, various stakeholders, um, you know, groups that represent um, various types of patients, um, other medical societies, because, you know, antibiotics are so critical to the way that we take care of patients, the way we practice medicine, um, everything from the treatment of premature infants to um, transplant surgeries, even dental care. Um, you know, so many of these things are made possible because we have antibiotics to protect us from infection. Um, so we you know, wanted to bring together all these stakeholders to call for the development um, of these new drugs, and that's kind of been um, a banner under which we've worked on um, several more specific proposals to really drive particular incentives um, to, uh, to try to address this problem. So let me, let me just ask you, other than medication or drugs, let me throw, uh, or let me ask if IDSA rather is actually involved in this. And this was reported widely actually earlier this year, and this is this issue of gut microflora. So um, believe it or not, I did research on this, and this actually was first done in the 1950s, uh, believe it or not. But the idea here is that if you transplant uh, bacteria from a healthy patient to one that's less healthy, and in fact this has been done in the UK at least specifically for the treatment of C. diff, that they're showing 90 plus percent efficacy. So maybe just Bluntly, is this part of your uh, efforts, or what can you say about efforts in this regard? Um, I, that is something that um, I think has certainly started to to take hold um, among a lot of experts. Um, I know certainly earlier, um, either earlier this year or late last year, um, the FDA started um, kind of allowing for this type of procedure to be done, um, and we have you know made sure that. Our role has, I think, largely been to help educate um, our members and the broader medical community about what the FDA is saying is doable, um, you know, under um, in this type for this type of treatment. It's not something that we've necessarily specifically called for, but something that we're certainly tracking very closely um, and staying involved with um, as a potential promising um, 
Treatment. Promising treatment, exactly. Well, you did mention the FDA, so let me go to the FDA activity in this regard. So in 2012, the FDA launched this GAIN task force, and this was a part of, and we won't get into the details, but this was a part of PDUFA legislation. But what can you tell me about what they're trying to do? And you did make a specific point about uh, FDA requirements maybe inhibiting uh, companies from pursuing research in this realm. So the GAIN Act is something that um, is legislation that IDSA um, worked very hard on and, and was very supportive of. Um, we think it's an important first step. Um, so I definitely want to make that clear that we think it was um, it was great that Congress, um, you know, passed this legislation and acknowledged that yes, um, federal incentives um, are important in this area. Uh, but we certainly think that more is needed. Um, so one of the primary things that the GAIN Act did was to provide an additional five years of exclusivity for um, new antibiotics that would treat serious or life-threatening infections. Um, and so that was to try to give um, you know, some more of an economic incentive to companies, uh, which again we think is helpful, but we don't think it is enough of an incentive to really you know, turn the tide on this problem. Um, the GAIN Act also called for FDA to update the guidances that they put out for industry. Um, and so earlier this year, FDA put out a new guidance for industry for developing drugs um, for, um, I guess they called it for serious or life-threatening infections, um, and they gave a few different um, kind of options for companies. One was looking at developing pathogen-specific drugs. So, um, for example, this might allow you to do a clinical trial of patients who had the same pathogen um, but in different parts of the body. So maybe all these patients have Klebsiella, but some of them have it in the brain, some in the lungs, some on the skin, etc. And so that's one way to kind of help um, look a little bit more creatively at how can we structure feasible clinical trials. Um, so we definitely feel that FDA is, is moving in a much better direction. Um, I think that they definitely recognize the crisis that we're in um, with companies really rapidly pulling out of this space um, and, and with a very weak pipeline um, of new antibiotics. And I think that they are very committed and demonstrated that they really want to do more to help address this issue. So ultimately now we have to turn to the Congress, of course, since all roads almost always in this regard lead there. So what has the Congress done? And I have to say, if anything, about this public health crisis. I know there have been multiple attempts, all failed, but what have they tried? Why has it failed? And what are they trying in this Congress? So, well, as I mentioned, they did pass the GAIN Act um, last year, so that was, um, as I said, an important first step. Um, one of the next steps that we're working on um, with actually the, the bipartisan duo, Congressman Gingrey and Congressman Green, who were behind the GAIN Act, we're working with them now on legislation that would enact um, LPAD, which is the Limited Population Antibacterial Drug Pathway. And it's essentially a new pathway just for drugs that would treat very serious or life-threatening infections where there's a clear unmet medical need, as in there's really no good drugs to treat these infections, or very few. Um, this new pathway would essentially allow um, drugs to be approved based upon much smaller clinical trials, very similar to what's done for orphan drug. Um, and then the approval would then be just for that very limited population, um, the people for whom the benefits really outweigh the risk, um, taking into account the severity of the infection that these patients have. 
Um, these drugs would be very explicitly labeled with a different kind of logo to make it very clear that they are only for a limited population and for patients with very serious infections. These are not standard antibiotics. They should not be given to you know your kid with an ear infection, things of that nature. Um, and in that way, we'll really help to um, limit their use and thus limit the um, rate at which resistance develops. Um, so as I said, we have you know a bipartisan team in the House of Representatives working on this. Um, there are a couple of senators who've expressed interest in working on this legislation as well. Um, so I think that we have um, a lot of promise in moving that forward. Uh, certainly, I think that everything on Capitol Hill moves incredibly slowly. It's very frustrating. Um, but the fact that we do have uh, bipartisan support for the bill, I think, is um, is very strong. Some other initiatives that we're working on uh, that are fairly new are a tax credit proposal to help defray the cost specifically of phase two and phase three of clinical testing. Uh, again, this is structured after the orphan drug model um, was very successful for those types of drugs. And uh, this is um, a, an issue that we're just kind of starting to approach Congress about. Um, it's different committees that deal with tax issues uh, so that traditionally deal with a lot of these public health issues. So we're having to educate new members and new staff. And so it takes a little while, but um, I think the fact that Congress has already said that this is an area worthy of investment uh, is helpful and we're just trying to kind of build on that. Um, but I think we also really recognize that while developing new drugs is critical, we really need to also do something to stem the tide of resistance because otherwise we're going to keep pumping all this money into getting new drugs and then they'll wind up becoming obsolete very quickly because we aren't addressing the underlying problem. So there's legislation that Congressman Matheson has introduced called the STAR Act, which is the Strategies to Address Antimicrobial Resistance Act. But that was uh, introduced, was that... That was introduced last year. Was that, has mm -hmm. that been reintroduced in this Congress? Yes, okay. yes, yes. No, I know this bill has been around for a while. and um, So I'll tell you what it does and then get to the issue of, you know, why hasn't it moved forward. Um, so the bill would really try to build upon um, current activities and make sure there's better coordination among the activities that the different federal agencies are doing because CDC, NIH, FDA, CMS, the VA, all these federal agencies, even DOD, um, you know, given that there's so much uh, of a problem of uh, resistant infections in our military, all these agencies have roles to play. But there needs to be someone at the top in the Secretary of, um, of Health's offices who's coordinating all that effort and making sure the agencies are working together um, and that we're really strengthening our surveillance and our data collection so that we really have a handle on this problem and that we know when an outbreak happens and are able to respond promptly uh, and so that we know what kinds of interventions are working and which ones aren't working. Uh, so that's legislation that we are, are trying very hard to move forward. Um, the STAR Act would also encourage the development of antibiotic stewardship programs in all healthcare facilities, which is something else that we think is critical towards tamping down this overuse problem. You know, I think that it's, in terms of, you know, why hasn't this moved forward, it's, there really isn't opposition to it. Um, I think it's just been a challenge to get Congress to kind of really hone in and focus on this problem. And, you know, for them to not think, oh, well, we did the GAIN Act, we're taking care of the drugs, you know, haven't we already addressed this? Um, certainly the um, Frontline documentary that you mentioned that was um, came out recently, as well as the CDC report that came out this September um, on antibiotic resistance, I think really helps to underscore the severity of these threats for policymakers. Um, and so that's something that we are trying to really capitalize on that momentum um, to really kind of spur more congressional action on this. 
Um, there is also legislation that um, has been introduced by Congresswoman Slaughter that would address... Congresswoman. I'm sorry. Congresswoman. Yes, Congresswoman Slaughter. I apologize. Um, that would address the issue of um, antibiotic use on the farm in food animals. And, um, you know, this is also legislation that we've supported. I think this has been one of the hardest areas to get traction on politically. She's introduced this four times since yes. 2007. Yes. <laughs> um, you know, Big Ag is a very strong lobby in, um, in Congress. And, you know, I think with there are both Democrats and Republicans from states that, you know, represent um, a large agricultural districts um, and that have a lot of concern over changing um, agricultural practices. I think if you look at several European countries, um, Denmark, the Netherlands come to mind as countries that have done a much better job at really scaling back the use of um, antibiotics, particularly antibiotics that have um, a use in humans, um, taking those out of, um, of animal feed and really only using antibiotics when it's under the supervision of a, veter of a veterinarian to treat a sick animal. In that instance, of course, it is appropriate. We just don't want to see every animal kind of being given antibiotics as a routine. Um, and the reason is this prophylactic use is because they think it enhances production. Mm -hmm. And if they if they withdraw the use, that'll lower production. So that's is that correct? That's, that's the basic argument. That's what we understand. That's the argument that we've uh, that we've heard. And you know, I think we would even as a first step want to just get a better handle on this problem. Um, there's such better data collection in the EU about um, how antibiotics are used, both in agricultural settings and among um, human health settings. And you know, we have some of that in the U.S., but we have a lot of gaps. Um, and I think that a big part of that has simply been because Congress has not been able to allocate enough um, resources to CDC to be able to do um, as good a job as their European counterparts on data collection. Um, we certainly support the data that CDC was able to put out this fall, but um, you know, recognize that I think our current surveillance and, and uh, data collection capabilities really are not capturing the full um, extent of this problem and the full burden of um, resistant infections. Okay, thank you. Let me just ask, uh, for clarifying, the, the legislation currently attempted to be moved to encourage the development of, does, does that also come with increased patent exclusivity? Um, so the increased exclusivity was part of the GAIN Act um, that came last year. Right. So the new legislation that we're working on this year doesn't deal with exclusivity. Okay. And let me just ask finally then, what, what would you recommend to anyone listening to this uh, on effective ways to sort of better understand or prevent the transmission or or what would be helpful for them to know whether it be safeguarding themselves or their own families? Um, I think, you know, there are a number of things. Uh, first of all, I would say don't, you know, beg your doctor for antibiotics if you don't need them. If you have a cold, if you have the flu, if you have an upper respiratory infection, something like bronchitis, chances are antibiotics are not going to help you because what you have is likely viral. Um, and in taking antibiotics when you don't need them, you're contributing to this larger overall problem. Um, of, of growing antibiotic resistance. So that would probably be my first message. Um, and certainly if you are prescribed antibiotics, you know, take them as directed. Make sure that you finish your course. Um, when people kind of feel, think, oh, I feel better after just a couple of days and don't want to finish their full um, prescription of antibiotics, that also can help 
um, you know, breed resistance. So that's something that we are concerned about as well. Uh, obviously, we always, always promote hand washing as one of the best ways to kind of help limit the spread of any kind of infection, whether it's resistant or not. Um, I think that, you know, if people want to take an additional step um, beyond just sort of the immediate protecting themselves and their family, I always encourage people to contact their members of Congress about these issues uh, because that is really the most powerful and effective advocacy um, tool that there is. Com members of Congress have to come up for re-election um, every two years in the House, every six in the Senate, so they really care about the issues that are on the minds of the people who vote for them. And if people say, you know, I am concerned that my child or someone in my family or I may get one of these infections and there isn't being enough done to address the issue of resistance or there isn't enough being done to make sure that there are new antibiotics if and when I need them, um, that will really help make Congress stand up and take notice and act on some of these proposals that we're putting forward. Well, thank you, Amanda. We're at our time boundary, so I appreciate your time today. Thank you again. Thank you.